Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients and their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. So the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020 was passed with great fanfare on January 1, 2021. It significantly expanded anti-money laundering enforcement and provided enhanced powers to financial regulators. But what bankers fear the most were already happening prior to the enactment of AMLA 2020. Monitorships, transaction lookbacks, and KYC remediations are the equivalent of a regulatory vote of no confidence. They can be incredibly disruptive, painful to go through, and can cost millions of dollars to implement. They are extreme measures that are taken when regulators have seen no improvement in succeeding regulatory exams, or they sometimes happen without warning when a criminal investigation reveals in somewhat spectacular fashion how an institution was at the center of a large-scale money laundering or dollar-clearing criminal enterprise and their anti-money laundering or sanctions compliance program and the controls underlying them failed to detect what had been going on. So these epic anti-money laundering failures can lead regulators to conclude that the existing program was so ineffective that it is highly likely that suspicious activity, possibly a great deal of it, has been going on undetected and unreported for a period of years. And when a regulator reaches that conclusion, it leaves them very little choice but to mandate one or more of these extreme regulatory measures to really like true things up and make the improvements that the bank was unable or unwilling to do on their own a reality. So joining me today is someone who's very familiar with these and other bank regulatory actions, former New York State Department of Financial Services, first executive deputy superintendent for enforcement, Matt Levine. Matt is now a partner at law firm Phillips Neiser, where he assists companies in compliance matters and investigations, including risk assessments, strengthening risk management and compliance programs, remediation efforts, corporate monitorships, and internal investigations. His representative matters include financial markets, anti-bribery, a cybercrime, and intellectual property. Matt previously litigated on behalf of a wide range of clients, including Fortune 100 companies, high-tech startups, and individuals at two major law firms and in his own practice. While he was at DFS, he oversaw complex investigations involving money laundering, terrorist financing, cybercrime, virtual currency fraud, tax fraud, and consumer fraud. He also supervised major monitorships implemented by DFS at financial institutions and served as the main point of contact for other criminal and civil governmental authorities. Mr. Levine also represented New York State DFS in high-impact litigation in both federal and state court. Matt previously served as a federal prosecutor for nearly a decade, first in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia and later in EDNY. In the Eastern District, Matt served as acting chief of the Business and Securities Fraud Section, supervising a group of federal prosecutors conducting major securities fraud, cybercrime, money laundering, healthcare fraud, tax fraud, and other white-collar prosecutions. So welcome, Matt, and really appreciate you joining me today. Thank you, Scott, for that great introduction. I'm really glad to be here on your podcast. Happy to have you. So at the outset, I mentioned these three types of regulatory mandates that really do strike terror into the heart of bank leadership. I remember one general counsel who I was meeting with on a a potential bank regulatory project, and he forbade us 
from uttering the word look back out loud, as though the mere mention of the word would cause it to happen, like Voldemort or, or Beetlejuice, which I, I found somewhat amusing. But it sort of gives you some insight in terms of how horrifying, potentially, institutions view these regulatory matters. But maybe before we get into when and why these types of measures are appropriate, for listeners who may be unfamiliar with some of this bank regulatory terminology and the terms monitorship, look back, and KYC remediation, can you give us a high-level overview, maybe explaining each? And I may end up offending the former general counsel that you worked with by actually using the names here, but we can start with probably the most invasive form, which is the monitorship. And the monitorship typically involves the appointment by a regulator or the SEC or DOJ of an independent law or consulting firm. The outside firm doesn't typically do regular work for the institution, hence the name independent. And the work of the monitor can typically be twofold. Most frequently, as you indicated, Scott, it's really to guide and oversee the remediation that is sought by the regulator after the rather epic fail that has been identified. Sometimes there is an additional investigation that needs to be done into either misconduct, intentional, or uh, inadvertent wrongdoing, but it's so deep that it needs to be further weeded out by the monitor and the, um, the regulator itself just doesn't have the resources, so it delegates that work to the monitor. Sometimes it's also called an independent consultancy, which is a term frequently used, for example, by the Federal Reserve Board when they appoint somebody to do a review for a financial institution. A look back, as you indicated, it's a review of prior transactions or records in order to remediate what you have as either suspected or identified deficiencies or even sometimes to conduct additional investigation. And it can be conducted internally by a financial institution, or the financial institution can select a third party of the institution's choice, or sometimes the regulator will mandate, again, that an independent party do the look back to review the set of transactions for a discrete time period. The uh, KYC remediation, know your customer remediation, uh, also sometimes known as customer due diligence. It's a bit more specific type of remediation in my experience, which focuses on the policies, the procedure, and the execution of processes by which a financial institution onboards and maintains customers. So uh, that's kind of a high level review of the three type of invasive measures that a regulator can take. Thanks, Matt. So, you know, on the subject of monitorships, they, they seem to come about in, in two primary ways, you know, either as a result of recurring regulatory exam findings in which the bank or brokerage has sort of consistently failed to demonstrate that they have moved the needle in terms of any money laundering sanctions or, or meeting other compliance obligations, or criminal cases which then made public reveal and really kind of expose the institution's role in unwittingly laundering criminal proceeds, you know, sometimes on a grand scale. Now, some institutions, as we sit here today, have multiple monitorships going on at the same time, which must really be both expensive and disruptive. But what steps can institutions take to avoid coming under a monitorship? I agree, Scott, they can be and are typically both expensive and, and very disruptive to the operations. And it's something that obviously any institution, but particularly financial institution, wants to avoid. The short answer, which is really not an answer, is to do everything reasonably well. 
And if you do everything reasonably well, you'll very likely avoid a monitorship. But that's hard to do. And you know, when you talk about a global financial institution that has business lines that are varied, that an institution that operates in, in multiple jurisdictions across the globe, and that sometimes the sum total of a variety of institutions that it has acquired over time. And when you have those factors, it can be very difficult to do everything reasonably well, even with the best intentions and even with uh, adequate resources. All that being said, monitorships remain the rare exception. And most resolutions with regulators or prosecutors do not require them. And that's because they really are, as you said, very expensive, very disruptive. So they are reserved for the most egregious cases, whether that's an egregious case of laundering monetary proceeds intentionally or not, or egregious cases involving criminal conduct, whether that criminal conduct was sourced in the financial institution or whether the financial institution ended up being a tool in somebody else's scheme. The current DOJ guidance, for example, on monitorships, this comes from a memo written in 2018 by the then Assistant Attorney General for the Criminal Division. For the, for the main justice cases, the criminal division favors the imposition of a monitor quote, only where there is a demonstrated need for and clear benefit to be derived from a monitorship relative to the projected costs and burdens, close quote, which is exactly what you pointed out there, Scott. And so the guidance goes on to say that where a corporation's compliance program and controls are demonstrated to be effective and appropriately resourced at the time of resolution, and notice there the time of resolution is the key, a monitor will likely not be necessary. In light of that guidance, it kind of formalized, I think, um, what had been put into effect informally at the beginning of the Trump administration, certainly on the federal level, which was a winding back of the imposition of monitorships. If you'd like, I can give you some examples of the cases that we've had with recent monitorships to talk about why they might be a good example of how to steer clear of monitorship. And a good example on the, on the financial services side is money MoneyGram got into a lot of trouble in last decade because they were letting their money transmission business be used for um, all kinds of fraud schemes and all kinds of money money. As a result, they had a settlement with DOJ, which required imposition of a monitor. And this is one of those cases where, unfortunately, in the view of the DOJ, MoneyGram didn't live up to its commitment to turn around sufficiently. And so I believe in 2018 or 19, the monitor was extended and MoneyGram had to pay an additional penalty because it couldn't get its systems turned around in time. The most recent financial monitorship from DOJ is the State Street monitorship, which came out a few months ago. State Street entered into a deferred prosecution agreement with DOJ for secretly overcharging clients for expenses related to its custody of the client's assets. The bank had added hidden markups to routine charges for out-of-pocket expenses. They had told the clients, oh, we're going to just pass this expense on to you as a pass-through, but instead they added undisclosed charges. State Street was already under another deferred prosecution with DOJ from 2017, and that one had its own independent monitor. In that case, State Street had conspired to add secret commissions to certain equity trades. So it was similar conduct. And so you had a situation most recently, a few months ago, where State Street was already under a different DPA, already had a monitor. And in this case, DOJ decided, okay, this is pretty bad. You need another monitor. 
And so that's the most recent example of a monitorship in the context of financial institution resolution. Yeah, certainly sales practices have kind of come rocketing up to the top of the list of bad behavior in, in recent years. Uh, some really stunning things that have, have gone on. But um, shifting to a more positive note, the, you know, the intent of a monitorship is to really sort of break the cycle of sometimes years of ineffective compliance efforts and force the institution to implement measurable improvements to their relevant compliance frameworks and the controls underlying them, you know, really for their own good. So what are the benefits that an institution can expect to derive from a monitorship? And you, can you think of any institutions that are better off today from having been under a monitorship and, and why? A monitorship can indeed, if it's effective, bring about the results that you describe. Measurable improvements that are aimed to achieve a sound and effective compliance program whether it's in the context of anti-money laundering programs, preventing terrorist financing, preventing sales practice type of misconduct. The formula for an effective monitorship, in my view, is threefold. First, you need a deep and persistent commitment to remediation by senior management of the institution and the board. And for me, that's probably the most important factor. Secondly, you need an effective and experienced monitor. Third, you need adequate oversight from the regulator or prosecutor that's imposed the monitorship. And I do believe in my experience, both the monitorships that I have managed myself, which is up to a dozen over time, and the other ones that I've observed and uh, had contact with, most monitorships do significantly improve the part of the compliance program that's targeted, or if it's a more global approach, the uh, enterprise-wide compliance function. Now, one senior representative of a global bank that was under a long-term DFS monitorship stated repeatedly that the monitorship had accomplished what had been intended. It took a long time, and that institution is no longer under a monitorship, and it was a lot of work, and it took turnover of management, took turnover of the board, it took a lot of new hires and a lot of resources. But they were, I think, pleased both with the changes that had been made and also, of course, to have no longer have to have a monitor. Another global bank representative under DFS monitorship told me once that they thought of the monitorship like the tough trainer at the gym who sets high expectations and works you hard, uh, but that results were worth it at the end of the day. Now, admittedly, this may have just been the polite and deferential talk that regulators often receive from an entity tied up in an enforcement action and monitorship, but I took these skilled professionals at their word, and I, and I do think in both of those cases where the monitorships were completed, that they accomplished what they had intended, which was much more effective compliance programs. Not perfection. No regulator justifiably demands perfection. If they do, they're not doing their job. But they walked away with reasonably designed and implemented programs that hopefully will keep them out of trouble for a long time. You know, to the outside world, the termination of a monitorship kind of be anticlimactic. If it's a publicly held company, the most might occur as a disclosure in a 10Q or a 10K, but internally it does bring a great sigh of relief and typically a downsizing of internal staff as the effort turns more down to business as usual. So, you know, that's the things I think can be accomplished. They often are accomplished, but if you don't have these key ingredients that I mentioned, it can result in an extension of the monitorship, which, you know, is I think what you saw in the MoneyGram case and similarly in the State Street case. Thanks, Matt. 
So I played a role in a transaction, look back at HSBC 18 years ago. And at the time, you know, this regulatory action first came to my attention. It was actually the first time I'd heard the term look back. And then another term, which you just used a minute ago, business as usual, BAU. And this matter, which was, you know, a, a pretty grand scale transaction look back at the time, uh, it was somewhat precedent setting. And it was really on the leading edge of, of a flurry of large scale lookbacks that followed during that period of time. You know, lookbacks can be very interesting windows into a financial institution. Because unlike transaction monitoring in which individual or sequential transactions may trigger alerts of you know, potential suspicious activity on a one-off basis, a look back looks at the institution's transactional activity over the course of a year or 13 months at a time, you know, sometimes dating back several years, which enables patterns to emerge that may not be readily detectable when you're looking at transactions in real time uh, using transaction monitoring systems. The patterns of the data, in fact, often is what dictates the approach to the look back itself. So for example, you know, there may be anomalous patterns of outbound wires initiated by multiple you know, seemingly unrelated retail and commercial banking customers in different locations, but who are transacting with the same beneficiaries in high money laundering risk locations. So in that instance, instead of looking at the customers individually, this pattern suggests that the look back should at least in part look for common counterparties to see if that reveals hidden relationships between and among seemingly unrelated customers, you know, as an example. So what are some of the benefits of looking at customer and transactional data over time as opposed to transactionally, and then what are some of the lessons learned that could then be applied to how the institution searches for suspicious activity in real time? Yeah, I think it's, it's a really good question, and, and you're certainly right that the transaction monitoring, the ordinary transaction monitoring that are done by financial institutions is really not necessarily designed to discern the kind of patterns and transactions across business lines across jurisdictions or across time, as you mentioned. Transaction monitoring is based typically on a set of rules, you know, that identify specific transaction types as potentially suspicious and deserving of a closer look. Now, sometimes a, a particular transaction can lead to further investigation that uncovers more suspicious transactions that are linked to a customer or an intended beneficiary of the transaction, but that's often not the case. Something like that might trigger a look back internally, or sometimes lead a regulator to ask for more. And when you get to the lookbacks, as you mentioned, they, they really have a different purpose. They typically are come onto the menu when a problem or deficiency has been identified. And as you said, they can, they can sometimes span a few years and, and they can be very burdensome and expensive to do. Not saying that they shouldn't be done, but I think recognizing the burdensomeness and the expense is important. The lookbacks intended to understand the full scope of the issue that has been raised, and it portends a larger remediation oftentimes. So as I indicated, you know, the lookback can be self-identified. You could have a series of transactions which pop up and rise to the top levels of the compliance group in which they indicate they think they may have a larger problem with a customer or set of customers, or it can be imposed by a regulator following an examination, for example. And this is a common scenario where a regulator has determined that there are a number of deficiencies, or it has other information 
from another institution that has done business with one that's being examined that indicates a look back is appropriate. Look backs usually involves very sophisticated data crunching. This is where, where the real work is done. And firms like your firm, FTI, and other firms are very good at it. And this data crunching allows those doing the look back to discern these important patterns that uncover both deficiencies of a compliance program and the suspicious activity that should be further investigated by law enforcement. There can be patterns that are discerned from a look back. And once that happens, one of the benefits to the institution can be that there are modifications made to a compliance program. Issues can be identified as more concrete and more enterprise-wide. And these can result into tailor-made changes in the compliance program and typically focused around transaction monitoring. Although not exclusively, it can be in other parts of the business, like for example, the intake, the onboarding, the KYC. One example, you might have a threshold that's modified transaction monitoring as a result of a look back. That threshold could be based on the dollar amount or the number of transactions occurring in a measured period of time or the type of customers, originators, or beneficiaries involved or the particular business lines or geographical regions involved. So lookbacks can have long-term improvements on compliance programs by pointing out ways to fine-tune transaction monitoring and other parts of the programs. Thanks, Matt. So whether it's during a lookback or kind of routine transaction monitoring, like we've been talking about, that business usual transaction monitoring, the decision not to file a suspicious activity is subject to as much or more scrutiny than the decision to file at times, or so it would seem. So how important is it to carefully document the factors that led to that no-file decision when it comes to a SAR? You know, what are some of the factors that tend to support not filing? So the short answer, Scott, is it's pretty important. And I hope you don't mind, I'm going to take out my virtual soapbox here for a minute, because the topic of suspicious activity reports is one that's close to my heart. Uh, the first thing I would say as somebody who's worked in law enforcement for many years is that they do make a significant difference in assisting law enforcement in their efforts. And I can attest, I have personally made cases from scratch using suspicious activity reports that I have. I can also attest that suspicious activity reports, SARS, have created new leads in an ongoing investigation I've involved. I can also attest that there is a lot of dissatisfaction about preparing them, and that dissatisfaction is justified. And that a lot of that dissatisfaction is laid squarely on the shoulders of the federal government, which I think until recently has failed to provide adequate guidance for the financial institutions that fill out tens or hundreds or thousands of SARS sometimes in a month or in a several month period. I want to point out this is not the fault of FinCEN, which is the agency primarily charged for SAR reporting. It's an excellent agency, in my view, that has been under-resourced for a long time. But under the uh, anti-money laundering amendments that you mentioned earlier, Scott, that's supposed to change. FinCEN is supposed to get more resourcing. And the law is requiring FinCEN and Treasury General to focus on SAR reporting reform. And so they need, they're directed by the Congress to look at how they can do this better, how they can reduce unnecessarily burdensome regulatory requirements. And that concern, that concern about the burden is what drives the fear about not doing a SAR, right? If you do a SAR, you're covered. But if you do a SAR every time there's even a remote indication of some kind of suspicious activity, 
two things will happen. One is you'll never be able to do a wall, and two, you'll miss the good ones, or you'll miss putting in the necessary information. It's going to take time for these reforms to bubble down. So maintaining adequate documentation continues to be a really important thing. In my view, you don't have to write a Faulkner novel every time you review a suspicious transaction and that results in a decision not to file a song. As long as there's basic information about the transaction that is consistent across the review platform, along with a brief description that can be easily accessed by a bank examiner if it is sampled, that should be enough to avoid an unnecessary scrutiny of these important decisions. Bank examiners, in my experience, don't generally have the time to second-guess individual decisions to file a SAR or not to file a SAR. It's only where they see repeated issues and long-standing patterns that they can get more into the weeds of the SAR reporting decisions that a financial institution makes. And in that case, that's where you get the kind of review that is a look back or the thing that won't be named. To answer your final question on that, the factors that support not filing really depend on the circumstances of the transaction. Is this customer transaction transacting in a manner that is customary? based on the past transaction history, for example? Is it consistent with the stated purpose of the customer's account? Are the beneficiaries of the transactions also consistent that way or not? All those things go into the individual decision. Again, as long as you have a good program overall, you're gonna get the basic information into the decision not to file, and it'll be there when the time comes, if the time comes. So lookbacks at times can be the embodiment of the law of unintended consequences. They're, they're very resource intensive, so it's perfectly reasonable to try to staff them using the bank or brokerage own headcount and maybe augmented by temporary workforce or consulting firms, et cetera. But by moving the pieces around the board, that could you know, take maybe an already thinly staffed compliance function and make it so that they can't keep up with their business as usual alert clearing. And a backlog of alert clearing, you're just replacing one regulatory problematic issue with, with another one. So what are some strategies that institutions facing a look back can implement to avoid that, you know, what we were just talking about, that exchanging one regulatory problem for another? You don't need a look back on your look back. So, you know, a couple of points, an obvious one, and this is where the unfortunate expense typically comes in in the greatest amount, but it's also often the most effective dollar spent, which is the use of outside vendors to assist in a look back. That's an important strategy. Outside vendors you know, have, to, have done so many of them, the good ones, that they're very effective in identifying what's the most efficient way to do it, what technology should be used, what type of personnel, how to staff, you know, how to scale up for the particular look back in an efficient way. I think that's an important strategy. The second important strategy is having dedicated staff to manage the look back. And so I think frequently the best and most effective look backs have dedicated project managers inside the institution who are overseeing the look back. And so if you either move somebody or hire somebody in new to oversee the look back, you can ensure that it's going to be done right the first time in the most effective way. On the other hand, if you give double duty to somebody else who's doing some other function within compliance, within the business line, within somewhere else of management. Now they've got to wear two hats and you're almost assuredly going to put too much strain on their functionality 
and you won't get as good a look back and things will be missed and it'll be inefficient and may end up causing, as you say, more regulatory problems, many more than they started with. And then a third important strategy is to work proactively with your regulator. Most regulators understand there can be challenges that pop up along the way when you're doing a look back. There can be challenges in the technology. There can be challenges in the personnel. There can be challenges in the scoping. There can be other needs of the regulator or the institution that take precedence for some period of time during the look back. And so the key is to keep a strong line of communication open between your institution and your regulator so that you manage their expectations proactively. Some look backs end up taking longer because bigger problems are uncovered or because, as I said, the technology doesn't meet the need and has to be expanded or modified. But as long as you have a strong line of communication, you'll be able to manage expectations with the regulator and you'll be able to manage expectations up to your senior management and your board. Yeah, you know, um, it's a funny thing. And I think the way that regulators interact with institutions and for that matter, institutions interact with regulators has become more mature. But I, I remember in the early days of being involved in some of these big anti-money laundering projects, there was this general air of reticence to engage proactively with the regulator feeling like we prefer not to talk to them at all. Don't bump the bear, right. Right, right, because they're scary and, and then you know we might trigger more scrutiny. But I, 100% of the time, I always found that regulators really appreciated it if at you know, important junctures, you said, you know, hey, we've got this work plan, we're getting ready to spin up this look back or you know, remediation or whatever the project at hand is. Um, but before we did that, we wanted to get your feedback on the work plan to see if you know, we're missing anything or this is consistent with your expectations. And the regulators are so appreciative of that because they want to have input and they, you know, they want to be involved because you know, ultimately they're going to be on the receiving end of that, that work product. And you know, the last thing you want to do is go down this long path and you, know, you deliver a report and the regulator is like, well, we wish you to come to us in the first place because you, you went off on tangents that we didn't think, think was necessary. Such a simple thing. And yet, you know, it's, it's a kind of a human nature thing. So, you know, so we've talked about the two of the three heads of the three-headed monster. Now let's talk about, you know, your customer file remediations for a moment. Uh, you know, it's an important part of AML compliance is ensuring that the institution has taken prescribed steps to, you know, to properly identify and corroborate customers and, and beneficial owners. So prior to the enactment of the Corporate Transparency Act, institutions were at a, you know, somewhat of a disadvantage in carrying out their KYC obligations, you know, particularly when dealing with certain categories of customers like private investment companies and trusts and special purpose entities or hedge funds or other types of legal entities, the ownership of which was maybe opaque and difficult to confirm. So further amplifying challenge is the fact that supporting documentation in a know your customer file, you know, it's got a shelf life, right? It, and it's got to be updated on a regular timetable. You know, so a, a KYC remediation, you know, is mandated when a regulator concludes that the customer identification program is deficient in some way or that the files documenting the customer identification and the enhanced due diligence is out of date, right? Stale dated. So what steps are institutions taking to kind of keep their KYC programs current and in compliance and, and avoiding the necessity of a KYC remediation? Probably the biggest step that I've seen over the last, let's say, five years that has 
have been taken by a number of financial institutions, particularly larger global ones with all kinds of different customers, business lines, is the implementation of a single unified client onboarding and KYC maintenance platform. One entity, I believe, calls it single client view. And this technology platform that many institutions are trying to implement, and by the way, it's not easy, but they are trying it. It ensures the standardization of information at the intake step for a customer. It helps ensure that checklists are completed and that only the authorized documentation is used to establish a customer account. It allows for much more uh, facile management when it's time to update the reviews. As you indicated, the information gets stale and a solid KYC program will have periodic refreshing of the customer files. And when you have a technology platform that enables that, it's much more easy to keep track of it, to ensure that it gets done, and to have internal audit, for example, review it and make sure it's being done efficiently. So the, so the technology step seems to me probably the biggest step that institutions are taking to make sure both that the onboarding is done appropriately initially, and then the appropriate updating that needs to be done is done over time. You know, as, you, as you've mentioned, Scott, that staleness can depend on what's the type of customer, right? What's the risk involved of the customer? The customer's business line or the customer's geography. Different risks present different timelines for renewing the, the knowledge about the customer. One more thing about technology, it allows for the kind of big data analysis that we were talking about before. So you can actually gain insights into various issues or risks that you may have based on your, your customer base from a single technology platform. And you can use that in other ways to modify and improve other parts of your compliance work. There are other technologies as well that also enhance the onboarding process. Technologies like Jumio or Unfido, which allow for customer identification and customer documents determined to be authentic, particularly for fintechs, cryptocurrency firms, and others where you don't have a, a branch for somebody to walk into and establish an account. So for me, I think that that's the biggest step. And then just generally a larger sense of the importance of know your customer and customer information program due diligence. So the Corporate Transparency Act being phased in over time, the most notable requirement is that companies must submit beneficial ownership information to FinCEN to be included in a database of beneficial owners that's accessible to banks, brokerages, other banks, and of course, law enforcement agencies. So in contemplation of that, what should companies be doing now regarding their customer due diligence programs to make sure that they're in alignment once the CTA is fully implemented? I think there's two things primarily that financial institutions can do in order to make sure they're in alignment with the Corporate Transparency Act once it comes online. Uh, first thing is, I think that most do pretty well, which is to monitor developments in the um, forthcoming amendments to FinCEN's customer due diligence rule, because standards may change that require updates to an institution's policies, systems, and training programs. So one, keep a close eye on what FinCEN is doing. And two, the Corporate Transparency Act is not a panacea by any means because 
while it will require companies that are covered by the law to provide information to a registry held by FinCEN, that registry is gonna be non-public. It's not available to anybody. And the only way that FinCEN will disclose that information is if A, law enforcement gets a warrant for an investigation, or two, if the customer, when opening the account or at a renewal of the KYC, gives consent to the financial institution to allow the financial institution to get the information from FinCEN that's in the registry. So one thing to think about for a financial institution is, what if a customer says, no, we're not going to give you our consent to look at what's in the information held by the FinCEN registry? Do you consider that a red flag for the onboard? Or do you consider that a red flag when you're renewing um, the KYC for that customer? Also, if you do get the information from the registry, you've got to compare it to what the customer has given you, either in the past or concurrently, and look at that as well. So I think having policies, procedures, programs ready to deal with these issues are really important as they come online under the CTA. So every day, cryptocurrencies such as Bitcoin move further into the mainstream of banking. You know, major banks are providing custodial services, investment banks are underwriting initial coin offerings, and more and more mainstream businesses have announced that they are or plan on beginning to accept virtual currencies as a form of payment. OFAC continues to add crypto addresses to its watch lists and warn ransomware victims about the risk of the payment of ransom to specially designated nationals. So it's becoming more murky from a regulatory standpoint with this emerging form of currency. I mean, earlier this year, the OCC brought a regulatory action that includes the requirement of a transaction look back based on the finding that the institution was deficient in its in compliance of monitoring of digital asset customers. You know, oh, great, something else to worry about. So what makes a digital asset customer different and what should institutions be doing to consider virtual currencies in their overall anti-money laundering, BSA and sanctions compliance programs? And you put your finger on it, Scott, compliance officers worry a lot. It's part of the job and, and my heart goes out to them because I think most are underappreciated. That being said, uh, you know, the concern about digital assets and particularly Bitcoin is that it's, it has become the principal means by which a number of malign actors are able to transact financially and accomplish their illicit goals. And of course, we've seen this most recently with the severe uptick in ransomware. And you know, ransomware schemes frequently involve payment via a digital currency, particularly Bitcoin. I think a lot of malign actors like Bitcoin because it's the most liquid of the digital assets. Uh, or some, some at least consider it that way. Because of this concern, this worry, that was one of the animating reasons that the AMLA 2020 amendments made a definition of monetary instruments to include, quote, value that substitutes for currency, so digital assets, clearly meant to sweep within its ambit those type of assets. That's not to push this too far. It's the case, I think, there's good authority even, for concluding that less than 1% of all Bitcoin transactions are used for illicit purposes. So 99% or so are legitimate transactions. So it's not to overblow the concern about digital currency, but it's certainly it's certainly a concern. That number I get, by the way, from Chainalysis, who does a nice report on this, 
every year about uh, how much Bitcoin and other digital currencies are used for illicit transaction. I think their most recent report from 2020 indicated it was under 1%. That being said, financial institutions do want to have insight into their own customers' exposure to this illicit activity via digital assets such as Bitcoin. You know, it's similar to where financial institutions in the past have corresponded banking relationships, right? And they're holding a correspondent banking account for another financial institution, but they want some insight into that financial institution's customers. They want to know, are those customers engaging in terrorist activity or other things like that? And so I think the same concerns about digital assets are now the case for financial institutions. And with respect to the example you pointed out, it was a bank that kind of did ordinary lines of business. Saffer Bank in New York and the OCC did an examination and found that Saffer had picked up all these new cryptocurrency related businesses, including Bitcoin ATMs and other type of digital currency businesses, and hadn't really adjusted any of its programs to accommodate the new risks by cryptocurrency. They can be accommodated. You can figure out how to have an effective program for a cryptocurrency firm. And you can figure out if you're banking a cryptocurrency firm, how to have good programs and policies and procedures in place to understand the risks and to deal with them. But if you don't really think through it, and apparently the OCC thought that Safford didn't think through it, if you don't think through it, then you can put your institution at risk for uh, money laundering and other illicit activity. Well, Matt, this has been a, a great conversation. I'm fascinated with all things anti-money laundering, regulatory, and been involved in a lot of these big projects, but their uh, regulatory landscape continues to evolve. It's, uh, it continues to be a challenge to operate within the guardrails for these institutions. And I'm sure our listeners really, really appreciate the insights that you were able to share with us today. So thank you. I'm, I'm really glad to have had the chance, and I hope you don't mind that I pulled my soapbox out once or twice to give some uh, defined views I've reached over time. But uh, and like you, I have a, a really deep interest in this stuff. I probably think about it more than I should. I really enjoyed today's discussion. You know, this this um, podcast series has just given me a platform to do my favorite thing to do for my children, which is to give them unsolicited advice. Now, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I've just got a bigger audience now. Well, I hope they're listening. Thanks, Matt. This has been great. Okay. So that was Phillips Neiser partner, Matt Levine. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FCI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thank you for listening. And stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. If you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest that you'd like to hear about on a future episode, please email us at fraudeatstrategy at fticonsulting.com. Thanks for listening. 